keep them open to Matthew 11, if you will, please. Matthew 11, at the beginning of this week, I was uh, intending to go all the way down to verse 19, which is uh, where Jesus is, John the Baptist is, is kind of the subject all the way down to verse 19, and I quickly realized as I was uh, moving in that direction that there was too much uh, to say just within these first five verses that I would either uh, miss some things or I would keep you here um, until the evening service. And so I decided let's just do five verses and uh, not uh, not take too long. More time than we need. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask that you will guide our thoughts this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes and our minds to the truths of your word. We, your servants, hear. You have given us ears to hear. So we pray that you would speak to us through your word, uh, empower us, enable us to understand, but also to obey and to do these things that you've commanded us to do. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen. Before we begin, just a, a little challenge to you, especially those who, who will uh, plan to be back here tonight. But for all of you, I, I would challenge you to, as you listen to this and those little lines at the bottom of your notes, to at the end of, of this sermon, whether it be right away or this afternoon, just to write a one-sentence uh, summary, a big idea. What does this passage uh, mean for us today? Not, not necessarily what you want it to mean, or what do you think it should mean? But what is it saying to us in this passage? And my 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 hope is that we will uh, see that. Not my thoughts, but what the Bible actually has to say for us there. Evan was pretty spot on. And if I'd have given him about five more minutes, we could have just called it good and uh, dismissed because he was getting there. So, Ken, maybe you should talk to Evan uh, instead of instead of listening to me. I don't know. When we last uh, when we last read about John. Back in uh, Matthew 3, he, that, was a, that was a year ago, folks. Uh, Matthew 3, he was boldly preaching about the one who was to come after him. And John, the Gospel of John, uh, we read a lot about John's ministry there. And in, and in John 1.29, John proclaimed of Jesus. He pointed to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. In another time, just in a few verses down, John said of Jesus, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is very confident, uh, both in his ministry, what he is supposed to be doing, also in who Jesus is. But then when we arrive in chapter 11, we find that boldness and that confidence is gone and is replaced by discouragement, by doubt, and uncertainty. What in the world happened to John the Baptist? Matthew doesn't explain it to us until we get to chapter 14. But there, and you can also read about it in Luke 3, we find out that John is in prison. John has been arrested by King Herod about a year prior to this, to this story that we're looking in today. Uh, and John was in prison because he had exposed the adultery and immorality of King Herod. And you can read about it, as I said, in Luke 3 and, and get a little bit more of a context there. Herod did not appreciate John's uh, uh, exposing of his sin. 
and he and threw him in a fortress in a prison. And were it not for the uh, great respect and reverence that the people had for John the Baptist, uh, Herod would have killed him. So for about a year, John has been locked away, languishing in this prison fortress. Certainly, John could say that things have not turned out the way that he hoped they would. Once, John had said about Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. But I don't think that this is what John had in mind in chapter 11. Things definitely did not look good for John. And as we know the rest of the story, they will not get any better in this life for John. Now, although John was in prison, he was able to stay up to date with Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee. As we begin reading in Matthew 11, we find that John had sent his disciples to be messengers on his behalf to ask Jesus a question. John was at a very low point in his life. He wanted to know one thing from Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one? That we, that should come, or do we look for another? This is what John was struggling with. John was doubting whether or not Jesus really was the Christ. Now, he had spent his ministry preaching and claiming that Jesus was the Christ, but now, due to his circumstances, he wasn't so sure anymore. He was a doubting believer, if you can imagine the two, the two ideas together. Now look in verse two with me, please. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John, who had once been so confident and outspoken for Christ, was now in doubt, second guessing his ministry, second guessing Christ. And I want to show you this morning briefly how this happened. First, we see that John struggled with the truth about Jesus because of his difficult circumstances. Now, as I mentioned before, John had been in prison for about a year at this point. And before that, John was the most famous guy in town. He was the first prophet that Israel had had in about 400 years. He's very popular. Everybody wanted to hear him preach. The crowds were, were flocking to him. He was baptizing people. He was preaching. He was warning He had a following. He had disciples. He had the spotlight. And for a very long time, John played a major role in God's plan for Israel and for the whole world. But for the last year, John's been on the sidelines. For a year now, he has been in prison where he cannot preach, where he cannot gather a crowd, where he cannot travel around with his message of repentance. All John could do was sit and listen to whatever news his friends would bring him about Jesus. Now, John knew the prophecies about the Messiah. One of those prophecies is in Isaiah 61, and it says that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to set free those who are prisoners. And I can imagine the question begins to creep into John's mind, If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why am I rotting away in this prison? If Jesus is the Messiah and I am the Messiah's forerunner, why aren't things going better for me than this? 
Surely this is not what the forerunner of Messiah should be dealing with. So he struggled because of difficult circumstances. But also, John struggled with disappointment from unfulfilled expectations. When we, when we heard his math, uh, his message in Matthew 3, there was parts of it that we've, we've looked at already. We, we learn that John believed that Messiah would come and with him would be immediate judgment and vengeance on God's enemies. Let me read for you Matthew 3 and verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We've spent some time months ago looking at this and what this means, but it's clearly an indication of judgment, of separation between those who belong to him and those who do not. And if we look at Jesus' ministry, even in just the few the few uh, chapters that we've already looked at in Matthew, and many of you have uh, read all of the Gospels and you're very familiar with them, so you can look over the entire course of his ministry, there's an obvious lack of the kind of judgment that John was expecting. If Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, then why isn't he doing what I thought he was going to do? If Messiah is this Jesus, why isn't he bringing judgment like the prophecies say? And these unfulfilled expectations begin to create disappointment, maybe even disillusionment in John. Now it seems for a while, at least, that Jesus was the one sent from God. He had been so sure, John had been so sure that Jesus was the one But now, because of his circumstances and the fact that Jesus wasn't fulfilling his expectations of the Messiah, John doubted. And this is why he sent messengers to Jesus with the question, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for another? Now, when we read at the beginning of verse 2, what John had heard about the Christ, there it says about Christ, it's helpful for us to remember and to realize that this is Matthew's narration. This is not John's word. And it's Matthew's way of reminding us of something very important here. It's Matthew's use of the word Christ here. Look back at the beginning of verse number 2. When John had heard about the, the works of Christ, the, the deeds of the Christ, I believe that John believed in Jesus, but at this moment, John was in doubt. And so these words here are Matthew, the, the, um, the narrator of this, of this passage, reminding his readers exactly who it is that John is doubting. He's not just doubting Jesus. He's doubting the Christ. He really is the Messiah. And though John may doubt it, it doesn't change the fact who he is. Now, at one point, John had been absolutely certain about this. But now he's a bit hesitant. I think John wants to believe. That's why he came to Jesus. He's not trying to find fault with Jesus. He just is having some difficulty putting his expectations and reality together. It just seems that Jesus isn't fitting into his understanding of who Messiah should be. And then beginning in verse 4, we read Jesus' reply. 
And you'll notice right away, and what kind of frustrates me as I read through it casually, is that there is not a simple yes or no answer here. Jesus, why don't you just say, yes, I am Messiah. Yes, I am the one who is to come. No, you shouldn't be looking for another. But that's not what Jesus does. Rather, he tells John's disciples to go back to John and tell him what they have seen and heard. And he's referring specifically to his miracles concerning the blind the deaf, the poor, uh, the, de- the dead, the lame, and the lepers. Look in verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And this was not just a list of the wonderful miracles that Jesus had done for the people of Israel. This was also a sign of the Messiah from various prophecies throughout the book of Isaiah. You can see all of those little references in your Bible. We won't take time to look at all of them, but they are all there, and they all speak specifically to these particular miracles. Jesus was telling John to pay attention to what he had been doing and compare it to the Scriptures. His works would show who he is and what he did, and, and what he did and said, and that they fulfilled the prophecy about the Christ. Now, we've also been reading about every one of these miracles in the past three chapters. Beginning in chapter 8, all the way through chapter 10, we see an example of Jesus doing every single one of these things. But what's also very interesting is that if you read Luke's account, uh, again, it's in Luke 7, Luke also tells us that he did these miracles specifically for John. So as Matthew and Luke are telling the story and including different details, each one of them, right before what we read in verse 4 of Matthew, Luke includes this verse. It's Luke 7.21 and it says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And then he gives the disciples this this message, go tell John what you hear and see. So it's not just what you've heard of me in the past. He specifically did it right there and then and said, now go tell John what you've seen and heard. Right here. And what you've seen before, but also right now. And Jesus was essentially asking John, what do the prophecies say? How do they compare with what you've heard about my words and my miracles? And instead of simply answering yes or no, Jesus is saying, John, you decide. Can you figure it out? And then Jesus finishes with one more statement to deliver to John. And this is kind of the summary of what he's already said to John through his disciples. Now that you've compared me to your understanding of Messiah, what are you going to do about it? How will you respond? Look in verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now this word offended is a rather interesting word. We'll look back at a little bit more tonight, for those of you who who will be here tonight. But it refers also to another one of Isaiah's prophecies. The book of Isaiah is just rife with with messianic prophecies. And we find here that he's also going back to a messianic prophecy. And that is Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. In that word, I'll read that to you. It says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. 
They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And what Jesus is telling John in verse number 6 is, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Blessed is the one who doesn't get offended by me or doesn't stumble over me. Because once you've compared me to the Scriptures, it will either bless you or offend you. It will either bless you or cause you to stumble. So which is it for you? This is how Jesus helps John in his doubt. It's an unusual method, don't you think? And I don't think there's any question here about whether or not John was a true believer. I believe John was a true believer, but in this season of his life, he was struggling with some real doubts about Jesus. And I think that Jesus' response to him also applies to us. Because haven't you ever struggled with doubt? I know I have. Have you ever wondered if all this is real? Just made up? Let me try to help with a plan of action for when the doubts arise in your mind. It might be the same question that John doubted. It might be some other aspect or quality of our God that we say, you know what, when I look around and I, and I see what is reality, it just doesn't make sense. And I begin to wonder if this is real or not. I wonder if this is true or not. How do I handle that? Like John, you might be in difficult circumstances. You might be wondering with your own kinds of questions. So let me give you four steps to handling your doubts. The first step is to realize that everybody has these kind of struggles. You're not alone. You're not the only one who's ever doubted. Everybody struggles with doubt at some point. You might not be struggling with it right now, but you have or you will. And it might not be this particular issue, but we all struggle with doubt. Your questions might be different from another person's. Your doubts might be different than mine. But you need to understand that you're not the only one who struggles with doubt. You're not the only one asking questions. Now from what we read that Jesus has to say about John in the following verses we'll look at in later weeks, it's comforting to know that even the greatest Christians struggle at times with some pretty big issues. And I have to say, they're pretty basic issues. I mean, John is struggling if Jesus is the Son of God. That's like number one belief right there. I mean, that's that's where everything is built on. That's what makes everything different about Christianity than any other religion, that Jesus is the Son of God. And John is struggling with this. John is the prophet John is the forerunner. John is the pastor, if you will, that has not been like him for 400 years. There's not been another one like him. And he's struggling with who Jesus is? I mean, he was so clear about it in earlier messages that he preached. But now, in his dungeon cell, his innermost thoughts come out in the question, are you the one? Or should we look for another? We have to realize that doubt comes to us when our reality doesn't match our expectations, our experiences, or even our beliefs. John's circumstances and expectations caused him to doubt and question Jesus. Now, if we take those things away, we take the, take John out of prison, 
we take away those expectations that he had about who the Messiah was, John doesn't have a problem anymore. It was the circumstances, it was the expectations that caused him to doubt and question Jesus. Apart from that, he's bold, he's confident. But when things don't turn out the way he expected and hoped, it became difficult to believe. Same for us. Our circumstances can challenge our belief in God's promises. Sometimes what life throws at us, what God allows into our lives, challenges our belief in God's promises, in God's faithfulness, in God's sovereignty, God's love, His justice. I need to remember, as do each of you, that I sometimes have the wrong expectations. Like John, sometimes I misunderstand the Scripture. Sometimes I get disappointed when things don't turn out the way I hoped they would. Maybe it's when my prayers don't get answered how I wanted them to be answered. Or when people let me down. When I look around this world and I see how horrible man can behave. When people do things or say things and it causes me to question God's justice or God's love. Open the newspaper, turn on the news, and listen to all of the things that, that man is capable of, and not only capable of, but guilty of doing. And, and the question is often heard, how could God let these things happen? If God is a God of love, if God is a God of justice, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? When what we believed gets challenged by reality, it can cause us, not always, but it can cause us to second guess what we believe. And so the first thing you need to do when doubt creeps into your mind is to remember you're not alone. You're not the first person to ask those questions. But then the next thing you need to do with that doubt is to bring those questions to God. He's not afraid of your doubt. He's not intimidated by your questions. God's not going, oh my goodness, someone challenged me on this? I can't believe this. I don't, I haven't, I don't know how to answer them on this. God is not surprised. He's not disappointed. It's not like we can keep our doubt away from Him. You think that this is the first time that God realized John was having struggles? That John, oh, John doubts? Oh no, he's my forerunner. What am I going to do now? This is not a surprise. This is not a disappointment. He knows we struggle with these things. He knows we have a very flawed and limited understanding. He knows that we battle with temptation, with the flesh, pride, fear. When John expressed his doubts and his questions to Jesus, we don't find Jesus belittling him here. He didn't berate him and and, 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 and give up on him. What did Jesus do? He encouraged him. He gave him reasons to believe. Now think about this for a moment. Think of all of the Psalms that you have read. I read one this morning that sound a lot like complaining or accusing God. Have you ever read a Psalm that sounds a lot like the writer is just complaining about how bad a job God is doing at being God? 
You've forgotten me, God. You've let all these horrible things happen. You've rewarded the, the, the bad and you've punished the evil. Those are called psalms of lament. They are psalms that, that, that do exactly what it sounds. They sound like complaining because they are complaints. So I read one this morning and it said, a, a, a psalm of complaint. Why do you think those are in the Bible? Why do you think complaining psalms, psalms that were sung and recorded for all of history, why are those in the Bible for us to read? I think they're there to show us that we're not alone in our feelings. Because when I read those, I think, I felt that way too. Or maybe it's like, I've never felt that bad. But they also teach us what to do with those feelings. When you have those feelings of doubt, when you have those questions, where do you go with them? The Psalms of Lament teach us we bring them to God. We cast our cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. Because as Paul told Timothy, that God remains faithful even if we are faithless. When you and I, when we struggle with doubts and questions about God's goodness, or about His faithfulness, best place you can bring them is to God Himself. And in God's goodness and His mercy and His compassion for His doubting children, He helps us. And the next step then is to go back to the Scriptures. Because as Jesus told John, He said, compare what you've seen and heard with the truth of God's Word. What is reality? What does the Bible say? Jesus said in John 17 that the Word is truth. Jesus told us back in John 16, He says that the Holy Spirit, and He called Him the Spirit of truth. He said the Spirit of truth will come and He will guide believers in the truth. So as we look in the Scripture, God's Spirit that dwells within us who believe God's Spirit leads us into the truth. And by being introduced to the truth, it removes doubt. The more truth you know, the fewer doubts you have. That's how God helps us. So bring those questions to God. Ask Him about them. Don't worry that it's going to come across as God's going to get mad at me if I ask Him this question, or God's going to get upset and rain fire down from heaven if, if, I, if I express some doubt to Him about what, what I'm going through. These are real feelings I have. I'm angry. Have you ever been angry at God? I have. What do you do with it? You go to God. And you think, God, I'm angry. God, I'm disappointed. God, I don't know what you're doing here, and I don't like it. I bring them to God. And then I go to His Word and I allow His Holy Spirit to lead me into finding the truth. But there's one more step. Because simply hearing and seeing the truth doesn't fix anything. Throughout the Gospels, and even into today, we we find that there are many who see and hear the truth. Yet as Jesus said, seeing, they do not see. Hearing, They do not hear, nor do they understand. Asked the question this week many times, how is it that someone can see and hear all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said and not walk away convinced that He is the Son of God? How can a person read the truths of God's Word 
As the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. How can a person see the truth, be confronted, smacked in the face with the truth, and not believe it? It's because seeing is not belief. D.A. Carson wrote, The miracles themselves were not irrefutable proof of who Jesus was. Faith was still required to read the evidence against the background of Scripture and to hear in Jesus' claim the ring of truth. We must have faith. We must believe. When we encounter the truth in Jesus, we must not stumble over it or be offended by Him. That's why Jesus added that phrase at the end in verse 6. Many had seen and heard, not just John, not just John's disciples, many had seen and heard what Jesus did. But many stumbled. Many were offended by Him. John asked the question, are you the one who's to come? Jesus' implied question was, are you one who doesn't stumble over me? Jesus, are you the one who's to come? John, are you going to stumble over me? Are you one who will be offended? John asked, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? And the answer was, blessed are those who look no further. They see the truth. They believe the truth by faith. That's why Paul wrote in Romans, the just shall live by faith. Not just that we are saved through faith, but that we live every day by it. It's what keeps us grounded, regardless of what's going on in the world around me. When Jesus told John that those who were not offended in Him would be blessed, He wasn't saying that life was going to get better. He wasn't promising that life was even going to get easier. We know that John remained in prison until his death. And he would even die as a martyr. But Jesus was promising blessing despite his circumstances. We too can be blessed in spite of the situations of our life. How? By standing firm in our faith. By trusting that God knows what He's doing even when it doesn't look good. Even when it doesn't look like God knows what He's doing. By reminding ourselves and one another that God hasn't forgotten about His promises. And He hasn't made some miscalculation in His plan. And we are confronted with the truth. We avoid stumbling by standing firm in the faith that God grants us. Jesus, I'm having some doubts. I know I shouldn't be. I'm kind of embarrassed about it, but I need to ask you the question. Are you the one? Are you the one who's to come? I used to think so. I was certain of it before, but now I'm not so sure. Things aren't going the way I thought they would. Did I miss something? Are you the one who should come? Or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus answers, you tell me. What have you seen and heard? What do the Scriptures say? Will you stand firm by faith and be blessed? Or will you stumble over me, offended that I didn't fit into your mold, frustrated that I didn't operate by your timetable, 
or by your game plan. Will you trust me? Will you trust that I know what I'm doing and that everything is going exactly as I have planned it? Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Blessed are those who look no further 